Welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first year initiatives. We are thrilled um, to have with us today Phil Hill and Kevin Kelly. Um, I do want to give a shout out. We're going to continue our leadership discussion series. We kicked this off um, earlier this month, um, but um, October 22nd, November 5th. um, This is in honor of um, a West Coast colleague, uh, Denise Sweat. Kevin, I don't know if she was involved in the, worked in the community college system in California um, in a number of roles. Um, And so we're calling it the Don't Sweat It the Denise Sweat conversation on leadership. Denise is um, an amazing, uh, amazing colleague um, and mentor to many of us. And so we want to honor her with with those conversations. So we'll hope you'll join us for those um, conversations. But today, um, I I mean, this is like the coolest conversation ever. I get to talk with Phil Hill and Kevin Kelly um, of uh, MindWires. And if you're not getting their newsletters, you need to be because it's a really amazing opportunity to keep our pulse on what's going on in higher education. So um, I've asked them here today. You can read extensive bios um, because I wanted to gaze into that crystal ball. Um, and these seemed like two people who would help us kind of begin to have the conversation around um, where in the world is the, the rocky, perhaps, terrain of higher education going um, at this point in time. I think that's a fair um, descriptor. So, um, and Phil's newsletter that came out just this morning was really interesting digging into um, iPads data, correct? Am I remembering the right one? Yes. yes. There's been so much to read. You've been producing a lot. <laughs> I know sometimes I can't help myself. I was in a virtual conference all day yesterday and you can't just sit there listening the whole day. You have to do something. So might as well play with data. Right. Oh, I, I, I love that. I know there are many of us for whom that makes their hearts very happy. So um, and this old history geek um, loves it when we when we dig into things. So um, just welcome so much. Thank you for for being with us. Um, and I, just a reminder to those of you logging in um, live today, we love connecting um, with our listeners via the chat. So feel free to um, kick out questions. Always I provide some questions to guide our conversation, but we love to hear from you. So if there are uh, questions that you'd like to have answered, put them in the chat. We'll weave them into our conversation. Um, feel free to introduce yourself. Um, you know, we're, we're excited. To, to get to have this discussion today. So, um, and welcome Maribel, who's joining us from Puerto Rico. We will get folks um, just from all over on our calls. So I, I tried not to provide the hardest questions in the whole world, but I do think I came up with a couple of doozies and, and we're excited about Kevin's dusted off the, the uh, magic eight ball and the crystal ball for us for today. But as we kind of think some back about, you know, the last 18 months, really, in, in our crazy world of higher education, what are some of the lessons you feel like we've learned? Because I think we're seeing some pretty big shifts in our industry. Um, and I'm curious where you think some of the big, the bigger things that are coming out of this time of pandemic learning. Sure. Well, I'll start out with a positive answer, um, which, you know, we hear way too often in media discussions or at conferences, higher education hasn't changed for hundreds of years and there's no innovation going on. And one of the lessons, quite honestly, is despite all the challenges over the last 18 to 20 months, is higher education is quite resilient 
I mean, the fact that we were able to essentially throw the vast majority of people online and see remote teaching back in March of 2020 with very few complete shutdowns of systems is actually a testimony to how resilient things are. And then you also, there were quite a few articles um, talking about uh, we're just going to see hundreds and hundreds of schools that won't even survive the pandemic. They're going to go out of business or merge. And we've had a handful that have happened. Uh, but so I'll just, I'll start out with that one. There is actually a pretty strong resilience in the system. It can be frustrating when higher ed doesn't change faster, but I think we do have to acknowledge the resilience that we've had within the system. Mm -hmm. Those are interesting insights because certainly a year ago, right? You were right there. We were predicting, oh, how many hundreds of particularly all smaller privates are going to close up and shop and and we're not seeing that. Yeah, and there was a good article in the Chronicle of Higher Education actually called out, hey, what happened to all of these predictions? And uh, so it was good, good for them for actually writing it. But that's my last positive news for today. But I will start out on a positive note. Well, well then I'll pick up where you left off and say that it is exciting to see that we can make substantial changes on a short timeline. I think the flip side is that it takes a huge effort and a lot of support. And a lot of people are burned out as a result of moving a mountain in a short amount of time. And there's still more work to do. So we have a lot of people who are kind of just trying to get through the day as opposed to coming to, to work with, you know, a lot of energy. And so as a result, campus also should have learned that they need to be more prepared. Um, Phil and Jeanette Wiseman and I did some podcasts throughout um, the pandemic, uh, the COVID transitions, we called it. And the campuses that were more prepared for distance education before the pandemic hit started out at, a, at, at a, with an advantage. And so hopefully we, we can't wait for the next pandemic to say we need to be ready, uh, especially when we have things like wildfires and hurricanes and other things that are going to disrupt the institutional or instructional continuity. And so investing in faculty and staff time, you know, some uh, community colleges out here in California have zero FDE dedicated to instructional design uh, or accessibility or things like that. And so getting more people onto uh, platforms where we're going and then Last, the pandemic amplified equity issues that existed beforehand. So a lesson is that we need to be more aware of those issues, take action to address them and assess our progress in addressing them. And you bring up a really, really good point there um, about the importance of assessing the progress, right? I feel like, um, you know, in my years of experience working in higher ed institutions, Phil mentions that we're very slow to change and we are, I mean, one of, I still have colleagues who are like, remember how Meg tells us the piece that it's like water on a rock when we're trying to make change in the system, right? Um, that that was, they're always like, yep, it's like Meg says, it's water on a rock. So yes, it's maybe sometimes it takes five or 10 years to see, you know, change happen in higher ed institutions, though we've, we've certainly seen a, a vast shift in that. But, but I think we've talked a lot in the last year about equity, Kevin, and I'm, I'm, really love the point you make about we have to assess is what we're now that now that there's this talk and we're beginning to put some things into play how are we going to make sure that we're getting the outcomes that we were hoping to to see there or the intentionality of those programs 
it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out in the next couple of years, um, as, especially as I'm seeing, you know, um, initiatives in HBCUs, right? Like Strata Network just announced this week their their connection with 28 HBCUs and a four-year project to grow students and um, leadership development and career. So it, those are very, very critical pieces that you're sharing. And I would I would uh, sort of just throw one on there, at least when I hear this discussion about what's important. You know, it's not as if nobody talked about these issues before, but I don't think uh, we had an understanding of the impact. And so, for example, everybody has talked about broadband access, but that one of the problems is a lot of disadvantaged student groups, they don't have broadband access. Well, once you got into the pandemic, part of what you learned is, well, even if you have broadband access, if you have multiple siblings taking classes and there's one laptop they're sharing, and so one student has the laptop at 2 p.m., you can't get on your class, or it's multi multiple families sharing a similar house or whatever those issues, that broadband access, just going with that simplistic concept, is not enough, that there are plenty of students who really didn't have meaningful access so one of the things I think we learned is I think we have some concrete examples around that that tie to access that we need to pay attention to, assess, and, and look at where we're going. And then the other one is uh, communities of support, you know, just how important it is to, to help students get support or peer networks from people that they can trust and talk to. So for me, I think part of it is hopefully the pandemic has got us in an area where we can have actual concrete discussions, not just we feel good about it and we have a simplistic notion. Mm -hmm. Let's actually look at some concrete issues and make progress on it. It's mm -hmm. a, a nice tie-in, I think, Phil, to question number two. So anything surprising that you're seeing play out um, this academic year that you know you shook up the crystal ball? We we didn't see, you know, hundreds of colleges close in the last year. Um, so maybe that was surprising. I don't think it was. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll start with a negative one. Uh, what I'm worried about, we, we were talking this before, you know, early on, is uh, particularly if you look at the community colleges, I think people looked at last year as a survival mode and community college enrollment went down more than others. And, you know, I've written about the nuances of it, but essentially 10% drop. I think a lot of people looked at, uh, particularly by this summer, that, okay, we survived, we're through that. Now we wonder, are we going to hit the bottom and plateau or might we actually gain? What's surprising me most or what I'm most concerned about this academic year is that at least for community colleges, I'm hearing some really bad stories about their enrollments and students coming back to class this year. So the 2020 to 2021 differences, particularly in community colleges, it surprised me how big of an issue that is. And I'd, I'd love to see the national data to see if uh, my negativity is right. But that's the biggest thing that's surprising me about this academic year. So you were, oops, sorry that sometimes my Zoom kills my video. Um, yeah. Sorry about that. But um, so you were expecting to see not quite the same de enrollment decline that we are seeing play out in community. Yeah, I'm glad you didn't invite us to do a podcast in June of this year, because I might have made some uh, pretty bad predictions, particularly mm -hmm. in this area. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I guess it's going to be my role to be the flip side of whatever Phil says, because I've got something positive to say. I, I've been excited to see centralized and centrally coordinated efforts. During the pandemic, we saw a lot of sharing on listservs and people coming together, and that has continued. And uh, even though people expected to have on-campus classes, again, ranging from you know 30% at San Francisco State, where I teach, all the way up to 100% in other cases, but often we see that the sharing still involves a lot of reinventing the wheel on different campuses. And so I've been in the last few months involved in two different statewide professional development projects. In in both cases, faculty and staff can attend for themselves or they can use it as a train the trainer model by learning it first and then facilitating it locally later. So making uh, intelligent choices and how people invest time and effort to help everybody get to where they're going. And in, in in one case in particular, uh, that trend involves a sh- that the shift to flexible course delivery that we're seeing where classes are being taught in two or more modalities at the same time. And I think that's the surprise, in, at least at the course delivery level that I see playing out is that the new normal is going to include these multimodal courses, not just online or face-to-face, but a little mm-hmm. of both. So you're seeing some some positivity in multimodal course design, and also it sounds like this kind of unique re-envisioning of how we can do professional development in a very collaborative um, kind of way. I really, I love hearing that. At one point last year, I had had conversations. I was very hopeful we were going to see additional breakdowns of academic silos that we would see more integration from you know, the traditional academic side of the house and the student services side of the house. Is anybody seeing that play out at all? That had been a hope, but I don't know that. I, I, uh, I think there's things happen slowly as we've been saying. Right. I think that there's a change in the awareness of the issue. So I think you hear more uh, straight academic uh, educators, uh, faculty members who are aware of support issues. But that's slightly different than we're breaking down the silos and we're meaningfully working together. But I think that there's a lot of areas that I've seen where at least the the awareness of what other people are doing and how important it is, I do see that quite a bit. And then where you do see people working across boundaries you know, it's sort of the, uh, you know, the quote, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. I think that you definitely get anecdotes of where these things are happening, but I don't think we've seen a substantial change, for example, between, you know, course delivery and student support and how those two can interact together Uh, and throw in, I would throw in like library services as well, you know, get different areas all working together. Well, and I would I would give one of those anecdotes down in uh, Riverside County in California Community College District had adopted an equity based course design training for faculty, and they've redesigned it so that it can also support staff and campus leaders to consider the equity in the work that they do with students outside of the classes, but it's still just as important. And that ranges from librarians, just filled this brought up, tutors, um, academic advisors, even uh, 
people who are helping students with their anxiety and mental health challenges that they're facing these days. So that's been exciting to see, and hopefully it, it becomes part of the trend. That's really cool, Kevin. I'd love to see that kind of get replicated in other places. Um, as somebody who spent a lot of my career kind of feeling like a bridge between, you know, look what we do in online learning, these, these concepts of how do we create like impactful learning environments is this can be applied to student services. Um, it's, it's neat to hear that getting played out in our country. So, um, you know, a lot of your, your content that you create um, and that you're working around is this course focuses on, you know, ed tech resources. So I did want to give a moment to, to make sure that we spend a little bit of time thinking about that, because I think these are such critical concepts that um, and critical resources that, that institutions are looking at investing in in pretty big ways. And, and Phil, we kind of talked about this a little bit um, when we, we got to talk um, earlier in the month. Um, any recommendations, right, as we're looking at assessing kind of different resources that we can use, um, looking at student learning outcomes, would love to hear your thoughts on, on that, specifically as it focuses kind of towards this larger area of ed tech. Um, I know there's a lot of federal money out there right now that, that folks are sometimes frantically attempting to um, you know, use. Um, I know our school system locally was had like a month, right, to be like, how are you going to spend $2 million? Um, yep. and, and that was that was stressful. So uh, would love just to hear your thoughts, your recommendations as we're sitting here. Yep. Well, I would say the, the answer, if there's a single answer to this question, it ties back to when Kevin, more than a decade ago, I think it was more than a decade ago, allowed me to teach his course for a term at San Francisco State. He was teaching a course on needs assessment uh, at the graduate level. And, uh, you know, I was able to uh, help him out while he was trying to get one of his many degrees and took a term <laughs> off. But in any case, it gets to needs assessment. The real issue is around what, what are your needs? What problem are you trying to solve? And you have to understand that first before you pick any kind of technology. Understand the need before you understand the solution and figure out how to, how to plug that in. So overall, that's by far the biggest single recommendation on how to vet resources. In, in terms of what's happening during the pandemic, and you've already alluded to, be aware, and it's not getting much discussion, just how much free money is out there. And when I say free money, I mean, all of these stimulus funds, a lot of funds that have really helped education get through the crisis. But one of the unintended consequences is it leads to a lot of uh, pressure to do, hey, we've got to spend this money by this time. We don't have time to look at our needs. We don't have time to figure out professional development and how to wrap it in. If we don't do it now, we're going to lose this funding. Or the funding is really given at a centralized level that's too far removed from what people are doing on the ground. And so there's sort of a separation. So mm -hmm. I guess the during the pandemic, the biggest thing is be careful of the natural tendency focused on the resource and how to spend that money before you lose access to it, because that can really cause some long-term problems. I mean, it's great to have it, but it's 
it'll take an extra effort to make it meaningfully address a problem that you want to solve as opposed to just, oh, great, we got this system that we didn't have a chance to play with before. Mm-hmm. So from a macro level, those are the two answers I think I would I would give. And I'm sure Kevin's got more of the on the ground uh, useful advice on this as well. Uh, well, I, I think kind of tying into what you just said, Phil, uh, one piece of advice is do your due diligence. So along the lines of what Phil was saying, during the pandemic, we saw rapid technology adoptions, and this may have been unavoidable in some cases, but in those cases, it meant going without as much vetting as normal. And this can leave entire groups of students at a learning disadvantage, especially students with disabilities if the ed tech's not accessible, students who have only a smartphone, as we talked about earlier, if the ed tech isn't mobile friendly. And so that due diligence of, hey, we're gonna, we, we have to make some rapid decisions, but we can't make them without thinking about the repercussions. Also, um, assign someone to investigate what happens with your institution's data and every student's data, because a lot of students aren't aware that their data may be used uh, by the vendor for purposes other than improving learning and measuring uh, the impact of the use of the ed tech. And so that's important. If the ed tech uses algorithms at all, talk to the vendor about them because some algorithms out there perpetuate the learning equity issues for disproportionately impacted student groups. And last, because your question talks about it, if you're tying student learning outcomes to the use of ed tech, then make sure the teachers and the students have the support and the resources, not only to learn how to use the technology, but how to use it for learning and teaching. Yeah. So I've, I've got to add one more to this, and it gets to buy-in as well. You know, we're talking about organizational decision-making, and Kevin's right about, you know, losing, potentially losing track of impact on earners, but there's also the fact of including people in the process and getting shared buy-in before you make a decision. And I wrote about two examples that happened, I think, uh, well, at the end of last year, so just over a year, just under a year ago with the Alabama Community College System and then the Tennessee Board of Regents. And in both cases, there was, uh, they wanted to make a statewide system LMS adoption decision. And certainly, particularly in the first case, the process was not, it was not uh, very open. It wasn't done well and it felt rushed. And it, in my opinion, accurately reflected somebody somebody's ulterior motives of what they're doing but the point was by the way they did it there was no buy-in for the big lms decision even though there was an opportunity to get state uh single funding and leverage it and by doing it they actually there was so much backlash they reversed the decision and went against it and so i guess don't forget the shared buy-in, the buy-in on these decisions, that you have a lot of people working on these problems, a lot of educators in different fields, and there needs to be enough of a process where people can say, okay, that might not have been the choice I did, but I get why we're going that direction, Mm -hmm. and I'm in, I'm going to support this. So don't forget that aspect as well. Mm -hmm. And that really speaks to the importance of communication, right? Yes. And I think that's one of, to kind of circle back to one of the things that Kevin said, you know, in our our earlier um, dealing with, you know, staff and faculty who are really burned out. And I loved this quote from moving the mountain in such a short time. Um, 
I've never seen my colleagues look so haggard as as they look right now. And um, and many of them, I'm quite frankly worried about. Um, and so when we're when we're having to make kind of rapid decisions, but we're not clearly communicating to you know those people then you may not get to be part of the decision-making process, but let's explain to you clearly why this is the resource we've gone with, or this is the process that we need to move forward. You know, um, you're really not going to be able to get that kind of buy-in from your faculty and staff. And it, it, I think we're seeing it really continue to impact morale at a time when yeah. Yeah, folks need, um, you know, we're, we're, it's been interesting. Um, NASPA put out maybe a month ago that, new new folks moving into student new employees and student service personnel roles are saying they're going to maybe last five years they're they're that's their intention you know where it used to be when i started off you know and it came out of a graduate program we were lifetime student affairs person i mean this is what we were going to do for the rest of our lives not five years right um so i think that's there's some industry repercussions that we're seeing happen that are going to continue to play out that are going to be very i think have some pretty serious repercussions as we move into the next decade or so yeah. uh, gina did ask if we could address the issues of trends of mass exodus from higher ed or leaving positions oh i'd really love to hear your thoughts on that um and it ties in beautifully this morning on my my carpool ride, you know, as many folks know, I have three kids and all I do is drive them around um, now um, this year. Um, uh, NPR was talking about jobs report for September and that um, education with 100,000 100, unfilled positions in, in the education sector um, this month that it was anticipated. Um, so much less job growth this month than, than anticipated, but would love to hear what are your thoughts about this idea of concern of mass exodus? Are you seeing it? You know, I'm hearing conflicting reports. Yes, we're seeing larger retirements. No, we're not. So, yeah, I, I am seeing it. I guess I, um, I read about it more than I see it firsthand at colleges. Not that it's not a real issue, but I think the description of it can um, it sometimes comes across too strongly. But I guess I would sort of build on, you know, take the moving mountain, tie these two subjects together, moving mountains and shared buy-in. I think such a huge issue here, it's not just purely workload and how much effort people had to do to make it. You connect that with, all right, do I actually feel that my institute or higher education in general has my back? They understand yeah. what I'm going through. And therefore, they're working to apply resources to make my life better and better. And by better, quite often, particularly in academia, it's more meaningful. Like, make my life better. Like, I want to make sure all this effort that I'm putting in is going to help out long term. And I don't want to just waste my time. Yeah. So where I do see a lot of... Uh, you know, workforce reductions and people leaving, a lot of it's just like, I'm despondent. I just don't think I can make much of a difference. And it's a combination of those two issues. And so that that's part of um, what, what I'm saying. It's a real issue, but it's something that could be improved significantly by actually uh, addressing what um, support services in your case, you know, what was mentioned from the survey 
and other people make, you got to address their problems and make them feel that if I stick it out three years from now, I do think it's going to be better and I can have more of an impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and to build again, Phil leads the way with these answers and making very little room for me to be original. <laughs> but um, I would say that that institution having your back, there's also an element of, hey, a lot of institutions are pushing to get back on campus this semester because there's a financial incentive, right? There are so many on-campus things like dining halls and dorms and uh, other factors that in, in they influence the bottom line for an institution of higher ed. And so if faculty or staff feel like, hey, we, we've just proven that we can do our job remotely, but we're being asked to go back on campus when, A, we, we're not sure if it's safe in a space where the Delta variant's running around or different, different reasons. Every, everybody's going to have their own reasons. So we can't make a kind of a broad general statement, but that whether or not people feel the institution has their back, there's an, an emotional and social component to that as well. Um, there's also the factor that this exodus, some people may not have had a choice. I know at my own institution, because the budget was reduced so much during the pandemic that they had to cut staff lines and faculty lines. I'm an adjunct slash lecturer faculty member. So there are fewer opportunities so that they can make sure that the tenure and tenure track faculty members have uh, full load. Uh, so there's just uh, an, a number of things kind of playing out. And it's kind of like colony collapse disorder for bees. There are so many different variables that it's hard to pinpoint one thing that's causing the impact, but it's, it's definitely having an impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you don't mind me jumping on Todd's comment, I think that there's a real opportunity here by it, Kevin, you mentioned the fact of, Hey, we just proved that I can teach. I can do my job remotely. When the conversation turns into that, into Therefore, I don't trust the school at all about going back to work. I think you're doing it for financial reasons. Then you tend to have an even bigger issue that feeds on itself and people are, you know, uh, demoralized. But there is a real opportunity where schools in particular can say, hey, we've proven we can do a lot more remotely than we thought we could. So here's a chance for us to come up with some for example, a hybrid approach that's like, I still need you on campus, but as Todd is suggesting, you can work remotely one or two days a week. It makes your life better. And let's be creative and do it to expand the support hours that we give to students. Mm -hmm. So if people, this is an example of, it, of an opportunity to say, hey, we can do things differently based on what we learned, not simply to deal with finances, but to help your life as staff but also to benefit students by expanding support hours. So I think there's a real opportunity in all of this as well. Um, and some, and be aware, some schools are going to do go after this. So if you're a school, if you work for a school who's debating it forever, there's a real risk that you know your competitors are not. So mm -hmm. I think there's an opportunity here as well. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important because one of the the things our students talked about we did a student panel back in August before the fall semester kicked off and they were very adamant that they wanted faculty and staff to understand they were not returning to normal quote unquote you know nothing was going back to normal but they also were now expecting to get services in a different kind of way 
that um, and and we're certainly seeing that play out, you know, at the institutions that I'm affiliated with that students aren't coming in person to meet with an academic advisor or register for classes because they can do that from the comfort of their home and at a commuter institution, they don't have to drive 60 minutes with gas they may not be able to afford, right, to go have that meeting when they can just um, log in online. So uh, I think, Phil, you've really made an important comment about how can we kind of move into this new place of learning, taking with us, you know, these these kinds of lessons that we've learned, right? We can't just, we shouldn't abandon it all, I guess, is what yeah. I think our students want. I think what many of our staff want um, as well, that, that we need to think about how we're going to evolve. But again, I think Kevin made a really important point that if we've been spent, if we've spent 18 months moving a mountain, a lot of times the folks who would be the people to make that happen are exhausted on our institutions, right? And so the ability to think creatively um, and, and things like that is maybe not happening quite as much as it had 18 months ago. Amy's chatted in that um, she's at the Inter Davenport University. Hi, Amy. Um, has adopted a hybrid model for staff now, three to four days on campus, one to two days remote. Students can see us in person or virtually, and students love virtual meetings and they're seeing lower no-show rates. Um, and Rebecca is sharing that they're also using a hybrid model, um, including tutoring services, which is working well for both tutors and students. Um, and that's important, something important to think about. I know um, institutions are struggling, for example, to find people like tutors and supplemental and you know um, instruction um, that, that they're having trouble, as many people are having trouble hiring, those are positions that aren't getting filled either. And so if we can say, well, you can tutor from the comfort of your home, um, maybe we'll be able to fill those positions a little more creatively. Thanks, both of you, for yeah, your thoughts and, and for your questions and comments there in our chat, too. Um, so if you could offer a single piece of advice, and, and you've covered a lot of things here, and I don't know if there's one, one other piece that you want to bring to the kind of bubble up to the top here about investment in ed tech. And, and Phil, you've made, and, and Kevin, you know, thinking about, um, you were talking about making sure we think about our needs assessment, right? Why are we doing this? Do we really need this? Is it gonna resolve um, the challenge that we think we would have? I would also insert in there listening to our students, right? I think so many times our leadership teams think we know what our students need, but we haven't actually ever asked the students what it yep. is. Yeah. I want Kevin to start the first this time, see if he steps on my points. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, basically what Phil would say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, but picking up where Meg just left off, and we actually talked about it on question three a little too, involve a diverse set of stakeholders in the decision-making process. And that diversity includes different roles, which I think leaders, staff, faculty, and students, as you mentioned, Meg, um, but it also includes people of different backgrounds, identities, and experiences. So getting first-year students or first-generation students, as well as um, students who might be a little more um, experienced with higher ed and what's going on. Uh, operationally, this can mean creating opportunities for faculty and student input, whether they be surveys or town halls or having someone on the committee using design thinking approach that starts with empathy first. So you're really trying to put yourself in their shoes, maybe mapping out the student journey, identifying the pain points, using a rapid prototyping approach that involves testing and learning as you go. So you're not finding out after you make the decision that you made the wrong one. Regardless of the model, having that diverse team involved uh, informs the decision in ways that um, 
creates that buy-in that Phil was talking about mm. before, because even if the, the ultimate decision ends up being different, they can say, hey, you contributed to the process. We were able to talk through the issues that you raised, and here's why we're doing what we're doing. So I'll hand it to Phil and see if there's anything left for him to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll try to give, I'll be Mr. Anecdote on, on the same point you're mentioning. So and this was years ago, but I helped facilitate the California community colleges when they developed the online education initiative mm. and they selected a statewide LMS. LMS can be boring. I've called it the minivan of education, of ed tech. <laughs> uh, you need it, but you're not excited. But just one specific anecdote. We had this large committee of distance edu- education coordinators and faculty trying to make the decision. Oh. But we included, we uh, the leadership at OEI included, I think, five students in the evaluation committee. Now you can say, well, 2 million students in the California Community College, how can you be representative with five students on a committee? Well, what happened is it changed the nature of the conversations as they evaluated the vendors. It got, it forced everybody almost out of embarrassment to make sure that you're thinking about how this impacts students or students, when you ask them a question, they would answer in a different language that help you understand, oh, you view this problem differently than we do. So that's just one anecdote to say, uh, when we say representative, part of it's just the process and it can make an enormous difference, even with a small level of representation uh, going to this. Hey, I have a plant in the audience. Hey, Jory. Um, but the other thing I would say is be aware that all of this free money and financial pressure is impacting the vendors as well. So there's a lot of shifting in who owns whom. And there's so much money in investment in ed tech companies, and it's changing the nature of these companies' operations. So we're seeing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. You're seeing companies who had raised tons of money during the 2010s but really never developed a business to back up all that money going out of business or getting acquired just for, you know, for parts, if you will. You have to evaluate the vendor you're working with for longevity and for cultural fit with your organization or institution. And that's something it's always been true, but I think today it's just, the differences are enormous. You have to make sure when you're picking any kind of ed tech that you have, you understand the company behind it. Can you work with them? And do you, what's your confidence level that they'll be around three to five years in the same form that you have them today? Yeah. So I would add that in there as well. Yeah. No, I think that's all such great advice. Because um, you're right. Well, I, as I read your newsletter, I'm always informed about the mergers and acquisitions, and it seems to be hot and heavy and constant change right now. And um, not going away. We're in the, yeah, expect more. Expect <laughs> more. Yeah. Um, Kevin, I really appreciated your, your recommendations around kind of thinking operationally. And, and I'm interested, it, you know how you begin to hear things when they come from multiple places and you're like, this is a sign I need to pay more attention to this, right? Um, you use the term, I'm not going to correct me if my language isn't right, um, but design thinking approach, did I? Um, based, and that's based in empathy. Um, Earlier in September, we had the team from the University of um, Wisconsin-Milwaukee on 
who have made this kind of trauma-informed approach that's very loose. They would they um, name it a little differently um, to their academic year this year. And that was how that this concept of using a design thinking approach was how they really developed a cultural shift um, that they're seeing play out at their institution. So, um, and they had worked with the entrepreneur program at their institution um, to have those kinds of discussions to begin to make some real significant changes in how they were viewing um, their community um, at their institution. So just put that out there, interesting additional listen. And when you hear things more than once, you need to bring those things up, right? Um, I think, yeah. go, go ahead, sorry. No, no, I was just agreeing. Uh, and, and Kevin, I think that sometimes we're guilty in higher ed of forgetting that we all possess resources within our organizations that can help us move forward, right? In new and unique ways. Um, we, that, that, oh, right, there's that entrepreneur group on campus. What if I plugged into them, right? Um, well, we only have about four or five minutes left and um, I could talk to you all all day. Um, it's just fascinating. I really appreciate your time. So I, I did ask Kevin to bring the crystal ball I think we've talked a lot about different things that we're seeing emerge out of this time, right? Um, not just the mergers and acquisitions as we think about my minivan LMS. I'm never gonna look at my minivan differently. The same, <laughs> now that you've said that. But what do you see as you peer into your crystal ball? What do you think is gonna happen in the next couple years, next five years in our crazy world of higher ed? We'll start with you, Kevin. Oh, great. Well, since you uh, used the phrase shook up the crystal ball, mine is still somewhat cloudy with all the snow globe snow going all around. Um, but I would say uh, flexibility, resilience, and equity are, are here to stay. And thinking about the trends that started before the pandemic, like uh, a move towards a focus on completion, rather than on enrollment. So that we're making sure students not only get in the door, but are able to reach their academic goals for the reasons that they set out for themselves, whether it's upward mobility or um, making a lateral transition in their work, um, supporting students where they are, all that. But in addition to predicting the future, I'm gonna empower the listeners out there, both those who are live and those who are watching the recording to be the change they wanna see in higher ed. Everybody who works in the higher ed has a role to play in the student's journey from recruitment to retention to completion, right? So um, working toward removing institutional barriers and managing our assumptions that affect student success, we just have to be more intentional and collaborative than ever. Yeah. And I wanted to go second. That way I can cheat. And I'll steal James' point that if we look in the future of education, there definitely will be a lot more involvement from employers, particularly large employers. But I think, uh, I wouldn't say that it's gonna go to uh, companies owning their own colleges or universities. I think it's gonna be much more blurring and a lot more partnerships with workforce, particularly at the community college, but also at the regional college level and uh, defining academic programs and defining things that can lead to employment. So I think you're gonna see a lot more partnership on that side. Um, the biggest advice I'd say when looking in the magic eight ball or whatever it is, is it's helpful if you can just try to take time out of the equation. 
just you make that an abstract concept because if you do that, I think you could see so many trends how they're playing out. If you ignore the fact of oh, that took fifteen years when I thought it should have taken four years, and so if you look at it that way, I think it's very clear that we're uh, facing a much more hybrid, flexible approach to education over time. There's going to be a lot more blending of face-to-face and online, both in terms of coursework and student support, uh, even in enrollment, visiting campus versus virtual tours. Uh, So the, the future of higher education is going to look a lot more hybrid. And over time, it's going to be a lot more flexible, or Kevin used the word resilient. I think that that's the future it's just try to ignore time. Otherwise, you'll get very frustrated with how long it's taking. Mm-hmm. So when we have this podcast 15 years from now, that's what I think you'll see. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll have to be back in 15 years and and, and see whether or not these um, uh, thoughts have, have played out. And I think it's a, I, I love this concept that you're ending on about taking time out of the equation, because one of the things I'm hearing a lot of is fe- folks feeling very threatened right? The, I mean, change can be threatening. And so um, folks, faculty, staff, you know, feeling threatened that the world of higher ed is just changing very rapidly um, because we don't normally see that kind of to circle back to, to the beginning of our conversation. But that um, I, I think it's great that we're thinking positively about, yes, there's this change happening and that's ultimately, I think, going to help our institutions last to be more resilient, to be more flexible. And, and as we know, growth and change can be a little painful yes. um, sometimes along the way. But um, so I think wise advice to take time out of that equation. Thank you both so much. We um, have hit our time and I really appreciate um, your insight that, that you shook up the crystal balls, you dusted off the magic eight ball. And um, this has just been such a fascinating conversation. I've taken pages and pages of notes um, to kind of go back through and review some really critical um, themes I think that you've brought up today. I wanna thank our listening audience. Um, as always, you can find us on any of podcasting stations out there, share with a colleague. Um, and we do hope that you'll join us um, later this month for our Don't Sweat It, the Denise Sweat um, Conversations and leadership. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Kevin. Have a wonderful weekend. Hope everyone finds time for rest and renewal this weekend. That's really important as well. Thanks. Thanks, Love the conversation. Appreciate it. It was great. So fun. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.